Well, hello, everybody. It is a pleasure to welcome all of you wherever you're listening in today, whether in the live auditorium, and we're thrilled to have you here, whether listening live in the classic service or maybe in the response venue or on the Moon campus, wherever this finds you. We're glad you're here, as well as those of you who are listening online today. We're glad that you are a part of us, and as we say many times, we're glad that we can be one church united together, even though in many different locations and that's exactly what we believe and we believe that God is moving in our midst wherever we might happen to be joining together. So it is good to welcome you. I'm thrilled to be back together with you today. Having been gone the last couple of weeks, my thanks to Pastor Jason and Pastor Ben who both did a great job in carrying us on at the end of First Peter and actually wrapping up that series for us. So Pleased to have folks who can just step in and do such a fantastic job. But I'm glad to be back to, with you today. I have missed you and uh, very much looking forward to diving into God's Word together with you here today. So I'm wondering, as we get started, do you have a favorite movie? A favorite movie? Maybe it's one of the classics. Maybe Gone with the Wind or Schindler's List or Dumb and Dumber. You know, one, one of the great classics. How about, a, how, about, how about a movie sequel as your favorite? My guess is that no is the answer to that. Because nobody's favorite movie is Grease 2, right? Nobody. Or Home Alone 2. Or Rocky 2. 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, or 8, right? Nobody's favorite movie is Speed 2, of course, nobody's favorite movie was Speed 1 either, but that's a, that's a whole different issue, right? Movie sequels tend to disappoint. In fact, sequels in most every realm disappoint. Sequels of games, of, of, of toys, <coughs> sequels of books, sequels of food, right? Yeah, even food. I mean, what's a, what's a food sequel? a leftover, right? That's nobody's favorite. So sequels tend to disappoint in most realms. But the fact is there's one realm I can think of where sequels never disappoint, and that's biblical sequels. From 2 Samuel to 3 John, the sequel is every bit as strong and powerful and meaningful as is the original. And we're going to see that today because we're going to jump into and look at a biblical sequel as we continue on in our sermon focus. Today we are kicking off a brand new sermon series that is going to be taking us through the letter of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, Peter's sequel, if you will. We are calling this Equipped. We're calling this message series Equipped. I wonder if there have been times in your life where you have come into a situation where you have felt ill-equipped to deal with the circumstance that you're in. Now, maybe you thought you were equipped and just came to discover that you really weren't. Maybe it was a situation where you got into it and you were having an interaction with some person and it went a certain direction to the point where you, at the end of the day, regretted what it is that you said. Maybe because you weren't equipped for that conversation. Or maybe it has to do with a temptation that had come your way. You thought that you were up to the task of overcoming the temptation, but you discovered that you weren't so equipped after all, and you gave into it. 
Or maybe it's a situation about wondering whether or not you can really trust the Bible or whether you can commit your life to Christ. All of these are areas where we have perhaps struggled, we have stumbled, and we have fallen. But the fact of the matter is, even in these areas and in every other, the truth is that we are equipped that God has equipped us. And we're going to dig into that and we're going to take a look at exactly the ways that he has equipped us for living life, for thriving in life as we dig into this series. And I invite you to go ahead and open up to this letter. It is 2 Peter. And if you aren't quite sure exactly where to find 2 Peter, if you just go to the end of the Bible, if you find Revelation there, it's the last book in the Bible, and you start to turn backwards or you go to the left five or six books you'll find it right there. there's a bunch of tiny little books in there and second peter is actually one of them and i'd encourage you to go and find your way there today we are going to launch into peter's sequel and this is so very important because we oftentimes find ourselves in this place where we think we're more equipped than we are Today we're going to see just the way that God has powerfully equipped us for life, for godly life. And you might be someone who's been spinning your wheels just a little bit if you really acknowledge, if you really admit to where you've been. Or maybe it's been a very long time where you have never really gotten to the place or it's been a long time since you've been at the place where you're really connected to God, where you're really tuned in, where you're really dialed in. Well, the fact is we're going to see that God has equipped us. And if that is the fact, then what better time would there be than today and as we make our way through this series to really focus in on who we are and how we're living. And I hope that through the process of this sermon and certainly through this series that we would come and commit ourselves in a brand new way to live out the equipping that we have been given. So 2 Peter is where we're going to be today. Please go ahead and open up to that spot as we look at Peter's sequel. Now as we get started in this, I want to set it up by giving you just a little bit of the background of this book, if we can do so, or this letter. Actually, much of it comes right here in verse 1, if you go ahead and take a look at it. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 says this, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. As with 1 Peter and other New Testament books, the author is identified right at the start. It says that Simon Peter is our author. Now his authorship has been questioned over the years, probably, not probably, but because the tone that this letter is written in is a little bit different than the tone of 1 Peter. And if you've been paying attention through 1 Peter, if you were with us, and now we continue to say, you might notice some of that for yourself as we make our way along. But that's not to throw us into some sort of tailspin as it relates to the reliability of this book, because a lot of that would be expected because of the fact that it's being written for a different purpose to a different a little bit different audience at a different time dealing with different themes than what the first one is. The first century or the early century churches acknowledge that this should be a part of the canon. It says right at the start that Peter is the author and we can trust that, believing that Peter is the one who has given this to us. Now, if you were with us for the prequel, you already know a lot about Peter. You know that he was one of the original 12 disciples. 
You know that he was close to Jesus. You know that he was one who was a little bit impetuous and quite bold, and sometimes that got him into problems, like the time when he cut off somebody's ear. (laughs) Yeah, that sort of behavior is kind of frowned upon typically, right? Well, that's Peter. That's the guy that he is. He was bold and impetuous. He was also a leader among the disciples. Whenever you see them listed, he's always listed first. Because he was in a position of authority and of influence. But as he walked with Christ, as he continued to develop in his own spiritual walk, we see him sort of rounding off some of those rough edges. And we find him maturing in grace and in knowledge and to the point where we have a couple of letters in the New Testament that are actually written by him that we go ahead and dig into here. As for the recipients of this letter, verse 1 also gives us that. It tells us to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Most New Testament letters were written to churches. They were written to individuals, but not so with Peter. Peter's first letter is written to a group of churches throughout Asia Minor. We talked about that quite a bit if you were with us. And now this one is written even more broadly than that. It actually says not only is it to those same churches, though it is, but beyond that it's written to all believers in Jesus Christ, which certainly include us. This is a letter that is written directly for our benefit and our growth, to equip us in faith as well. The letter is written in or very close to A.D. 67, which means it's right at the end of Peter's life. In fact, later on in this letter, Peter's going to talk about the fact that he expects that he is going to die soon. And so what we have here are a man who is writing what he knows are going to be some of his final words. And as such, that's always important. And you know that there's powerful stuff that's going to be written. And he chooses to use some of his last words to tell the believers how they've been equipped to encourage them in the faith, to strengthen them so that they might be successful as they move their way forward so they'd be able to stand strong against the opposition that was coming against them and stand strong against evil people like the emperor Nero and others who were coming against them because it was a very real problem. But the persecution wasn't just coming at them from outside the church. It was also happening inside the church. And much of 2 Peter is actually written also to combat the false teachers who had come into the church, who were teaching things that sounded kind of right, but they were wrong. And they were leading people astray. And so Peter is writing to say, no, this is who you are. This is how you've been equipped. This is how God made you. And this is what I want to remind you of who you are. We saw that in 1 Peter, and now he's driving that home even more so here in second Peter so people would understand this is who I am and so it's very interesting to look at the the context and to see the different sorts of things that he says here's how you've been equipped here's what you've been equipped with and so we naturally would ask the question well what are some of those things I'm glad you asked the question because that's where we're going to go with this today we're going to go ahead and point out some of the things that Peter points out just as he gets this letter started right out of the chute To say this is who you are. So let's go ahead and take a look at some of these things. It's actually very interesting as we look at this rather impressive list. Because what he does, he actually comes out and says that this is an impressive list. You know how he says it? Right here in verse 3, if I can just jump to that quickly. Here's what he writes. He writes, his divine power has given us everything we need. His divine power has given us 
everything. You want to be equipped? Okay, how about having everything that you need? That's exactly what he is talking about here. Today we're celebrating the fact that we have all we need. No reason after this to say, well, I'd do better, I'd be more equipped, if only I had. No. Saying you have all we need. So what are those things? Let's highlight some here for you. First of those things that he says is a powerful provision that he's equipped us with is a faith that is precious, he says. It appears as though precious is one of Peter's favorite words. Back in his first letter, he talked about the precious blood of Christ. He talked about the precious cornerstone. Later on in our own passage, as this just gets started, he talks about precious promises that are ours. And here he talks about a faith that is precious. We all have favorite words that we use, favorite phrases, go-to phrases that we have and just sort of roll off of our tongue all the time. I have some of those for sure. My kids point them out to me. I, uh, they actually live out of state now, but they still listen to all, or they take part in all of Pathways services. They listen to my sermons. And so if we get together, as we were not too long ago, they sometimes will get into imitating my preaching. And they will use some of those phrases that they think that I use a lot. Basically, they're mocking me. Yes, that's exactly what they're doing. And so they will use some, and apparently they have pointed out to me that one of the things that I say a lot is, to be sure. To be sure. Just kind of like that, right? That's one of the things. Now, I've never noticed that. So you can help me. So if during the course of this message I say, to be sure at all, I'd just like you to slip up your hand so that you can remind me and point out to me that I'm saying it, because otherwise there's no way that I'll figure it out, to be sure. Okay, there you go, yes, you are with me. All right, thank you for paying attention. We'll see how that goes as we make our way along. I really don't know how it's going to go, to be honest with you. But here we go. We see Peter using his favorite word without being mocked. <laughs> Peter, yeah, unlike my kids, in its context here in verse 1. Look at it. It says, To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, there it is, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you probably don't have, or I don't have any doubt that you believe that your faith is precious. But Peter says, I want you to be sure to understand just how precious your faith is. He says, your faith is as precious as ours. Ours. Who's he talking about when he says ours? He's talking about himself. He's talking about the other disciples, which is amazing. See, we're given to think that we're, we're not in the same class with the disciples. You say, they wrote parts of the Bible. I can barely find mine half the time, right? We're not in their same class, but that's not what Peter says. He says that our faith is exactly the same as their faith. And there's a reason for that. And the reason has everything to do with the source of the faith. It's not generated out of your goodness. It's not generated out of your ability. See, if it was, we'd have every reason to doubt it. And sometimes the way that we live our lives is by equipping ourselves rather than allowing ourselves to be equipped by God and so if we're walking around just sort of 
lackluster in our spiritual walk. Maybe there is a reason for that. But Peter says that there's a source of our faith, and in the case of faith that is the same as the disciples' faith that is generated out of, and here's the source, it is God's righteousness. God's righteousness, if you're taking notes, that's how you fill in the first source under point one. Again, here in verse one, Peter is writing, here's what he says, he's writing to those who through the righteousness of God, there it is, through the righteousness of our God, have received a faith as precious as ours. The reason it's the same faith with the same power is because it's generated from the same God. It only makes sense that it would be the same, that we are equipped in the same way. It's his desire that we would all share in that same precious faith, so God bestows it on us equally. Think about it in the realm of parenting. If you have more than one child, you don't decide that you're going to love one child and withhold from the other one, even if they do mock you from time to time, to be sure. Okay, thank you. Your love is not based on their birth order or even if one of them is more obedient than the other, though you're tempted when that happens to maybe show more love to one than the other. Not at all. You love them the same because they're your children. You don't show favoritism toward them. And so it is with God. Our faith is the same as the disciples' faith because we are made in God's image just as they were. God desires for us to experience the same fullness that they experienced And so he gives us the same faith, the same promise, the same boldness, and the same source, which is his righteousness, not ours. So even if you've been living a life that has been apart from God, and you're like, well, I'm going to have to earn my way back in to God actually giving me the sort of blessing that he would have given to somebody else, you're wrong. He's ready to provide that for you from the first moment. Because he loves you. And he desires you to experience that. And here's the thing. If we have the same precious faith, it ought to be demonstrated in the same way that the disciples demonstrated their faith. What did that look like? It was bold. It was courageous. It was a risky sort of faith as they stepped out for God. That's what characterized their faith. On the contrary, how often do we just try to incorporate faith into our lives? In other words, we have certain priorities, certain directions that we're going, certain things that we've established our life to be. And it's like, well, I I know Jesus and uh, faith should be more a part of my life. So I'm going to try to cram faith somehow, incorporate it into the centerpiece of who I've already shaped myself to be. Instead, what God would have us to do is to start to unpack life, to get all of that stuff out on the outside somewhere. Important stuff, yes. Stuff that's still a priority for you, but you fill the core and the foundation with Christ so that it might permeate the rest of what we allow or the rest of what we incorporate into life, whether that be work, whether that be marriage, whether that be family, whatever it would be, that Christ is at the core so that that faith that we have might then permeate all the rest of what is a part of life. We try to do it backwards. We fill up with other things, and then we try to cram faith in there. We try to cram God in there, and it's no surprise that it doesn't stick because it's not the foundation. It's not the core. For some of us, we need to figure out, what does it look like for me to start to unpack all that other stuff, to set it aside, to get priorities established with God at the core and the foundation, and then allow the other things, the other activities of life, to be shaped by that instead of the other way around. For many of us, we're stuck. 
We don't have a faith that is precious. We barely have a faith. Enough to give us some sort of eternal security we trust. But not enough that really shapes who we are. If we're going to turn ourselves around from the way we've been going, which is not the direction that God would have us to go, and you know that, this is where it's got to start. Making sure we have the foundation as it ought to be. So, we've been equipped with a faith that is precious. That's beautiful. goes on. Secondly, also, a life of godliness. A life of godliness. Take a look at the way Peter expresses this in verse 3. It's really good. He writes, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. You ever wonder why your spiritual life hasn't taken off more than it has? Do you ever wonder whether or not your spiritual life is ever going to really take flight the way that you believe that it should, the way that you believe that God would have it to? Do you ever wonder whether or not you're going to stop being so tempted and falling into sin again and again and again and seemingly never really being able to hit your stride when it comes to your spiritual walk? Peter writes to people who are wondering the same thing, and he says, if that's who you want to be, you have all you need. All you need to be sure. You say, no, I don't. You say, no, I don't. I can't possibly have everything I need or I'd already be living that life, putting away the old sins, not continually taking on new sins along the way. But Peter says, no, you have it all. The problem, you see, isn't what you have. It's what you put to use. You've been equipped. It's all about what you put to use, not just what you have. At home, in my garage, I've got a box, sits on the shelf. Inside, a couple cans of car wax, a couple bottles of car wax. I've got lint-free claws, I've got applicators, I've got sponges, I've got nozzles, I've got everything except maybe a sham wow. They still make sham wows, do they? You don't know. Well, I don't have one anyway, but I've got everything else. But I'm still behind in waxing my cars. It's got nothing to do with having what I need. It's got everything to do with applying what I have. Same thing that we're talking about right here. Everything we need is available, but we need to put what we have to use. And if there's any doubt as to whether or not we've been given something that is sufficient, Peter settles it by telling us exactly where it comes from. Look at the source. The source is God's divine power. Verse 3 again. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. If you're ever tempted to tell yourself you don't have what it takes, memorize this verse. In fact, this is one of those key verses you just ought to memorize anyway. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. It takes all the excuses off the table to be sure, but it also encourages us. Thank you. That one wasn't intentional. (laughs) That's good. That's good. All right. What was I talking about? Oh, yes. Yes. His divine power has given us everything we need for 
a godly life. You ever been tempted to believe? You need to get up in the morning. You need to recite this verse to yourself. When you walk into work, you should recite this verse to yourself as you go through the door, as you enter into a difficult situation, a relationship, or conversation with someone. You ought to recite this verse to yourself. The source of all we need is God's divine power. That's the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the power that gave sight to the blind. It's the power that gave peace in the midst of the storm. And it's the same power that will give you peace in the midst of your storm. Whatever that happens to be, today, tomorrow, whenever you face it. If you find yourself discouraged and doubting today, understand it's not a power problem. It's an application problem. It's not that you're stuck where you are. It's that you've yet to take the things that you've been equipped with and apply them to the situation that you're in. That's what he's telling us. So how do you rely on God's power to lead you to godliness and a life that God intends? Great question. And it ties into the last of the provisions that we're given here. And that is that we also have a share in Christ's nature. Here's how Peter says it in verse 4. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises. There's that favorite word of his again, precious. So that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. When you were born, you were born with a sinful nature. David, who's someone who knew a lot about the sinful nature, taking him down, wrote this in Psalm 51 when he's regretting his sin. He wrote, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We all struggle with the sin nature, but the good news is that we haven't been left alone without weapons to be equipped with to fight that battle because we have the presence of God's Spirit within to indwell us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that is a promise that you have been given, something you've been equipped with. That's the divine nature that Peter is talking about here, and it changes everything. It doesn't mean that you no longer sin, but it doesn't mean that you no longer have to be a slave to that sin, because you've been equipped with the ways to overcome it. So how do we find the freedom from sin and defeat? The source is God's glory. God's glory. Verse 4 again, it says, through these, which forces us to ask the question, what are the these? He's talking about through what? Exactly, which points us back to verse 3, the end of verse 3, which talks about God's glory and goodness. So putting that together, verse 4 we might say would read like this, through God's glory and goodness, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. The problem that trips us up day after day is that we're not relying on the divine nature that we have a share in or the spirit nature that resides within to live a life that goes all in. We're not relying on what we have already been given. Instead, what we often do is rely on our own resources and wisdom and, and ability. We fight our own battles, and even though we put great effort into it, perhaps we end up defeated because we're relying on our own strength, our own power, our own righteousness, our own goodness, our own glory, rather than on God's. Happens all the time. 
And how can you know that you're participating in the divine nature? The end of verse 4 says, because you'll be living, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. If you have more evil desires to overcome in your life, then there's more of God's nature to share in. There's no more to appropriate. And that's a key indicator to you that there's more to lean into. There's more to rest in and on. So the big question is, how do you submit to the divine nature? Well, first of all, we need to understand it's not just about doing more things. It's not about just doing more things. You can do more religious things and not get any closer to God. That's because there's no such thing as justification through rule-keeping. It might make you feel more pious, but it won't actually make you more godly. Because that's not how you become godly. For many of us, we need to stop focusing on obligation and start focusing on adoration. Quite honestly, what many of us need to do is fall in love with God. We need to fall in love with God. Because I'm afraid that many of us actually aren't there. I'm afraid that many of us perhaps have never really experienced what it means to live in love with God. See, you can be in a marriage and labor to fulfill your duty apart from a passionate love for your spouse, but it's a whole lot easier and a whole lot more fun and a whole lot more successful if you do it out of passionate love for your spouse. See, we've been made to be passionate people. God has put passion within us in the first place where to take and apply that is with God. But instead, so many of us don't respond to God out of love. We respond out of guilt. And guilt can be a great motivator, but it will not last. Many of us, we read the Bible because we feel guilty about not reading it. We pray because we feel guilty about the fact that we haven't talked to God for a while. We go to church because we feel guilty that we haven't been there recently enough or we haven't had our kids there often enough. We're motivated out of guilt and it only goes so far and it keeps you anchored to earth rather than being allowed to soar into the heavens. Instead, we need to learn to fall in love with God. Again, you can respond to your spouse out of obligation and duty if you want. But your relationship will never soar. Not until love sweeps in and sweeps you off your feet, as it were. And again, for some of us, we've never really experienced what loving God really looks like what it really feels like. So as you wrap this up, I just want to give you a, a little acrostic, if you will. Something that you might take, that you might jot down, that just gives us a few things if we want to focus in on this idea of love and allowing that to lead us somewhere. What might we do so that we might fall in love more with God? Well, let me give you a few things in this love acrostic. The first of those would be to listen. Friends, until we create some time and some space to spend time with God, 
to listen to what he would have to say, we're never going to fall in love. Imagine that in your relationship with your spouse or some significant other. If you never create time to spend with that person, how much is that love going to thrive? It's not at all. And for some of us, there's so many things coming our way. We're, sub- we're bombarded by so many things coming at us that we never really have time to just sit and love and appreciate and listen to what God might communicate to us. You ever heard love spilled, what, T-I-M-E, right? Well, it's the same way with God. You're never going to develop that until you just bask in His presence. If you want to love God, you need to listen. You also need to be open. Be open to what God would say. We need to have an open mind and an open heart. You know what I believe about most of us? We already know what God wants of us. We know where he wants to lead us. We know the things that we ought to be trying to purge from our lives. We know it all. We just haven't really been open to doing it. We feel a little bit convicted about it, but we still push it off because we really haven't been open. Well, imagine if there was tension between you and your spouse and you were never open to actually changing some behavior, to working your way through that, to receiving what they have to say, that relationship is never going to thrive. Same way with God. We need to be open to the things that we already know. If you want to love God, you need to listen, you need to be open. You also need to value. You need to value what He offers you in terms of His Word, in terms of prayer, in terms of the prompting of His Spirit that resides within you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But for many of us, we're demonstrating that we really don't value hearing from God because we're not spending any time listening. We're not really digging into or trying to consume what it is that He's offering our direction. Will love ever happen apart from that? No. Never will. You might feel some more guilt. You might jump into a Bible reading program because of the guilt. And somewhere around March, April, January, you sort of let it go. Why? Because you're not in love with it. You're not in love with Him. You're not allowing love to rule the day. You want to love God. You need to listen. You need to be open. You need to value what He would speak and communicate to you, and you also need to enjoy. You need to just enjoy Him. Delight in the things that He has given. Delight in the trees that you see around you, the rain as it falls. Delight in the majesty of the mountains or the, the running streams or the stars that are in the sky. He's given all of that to you as a blessing. The marvel of the gift that he's provided ought to just have us standing in awe, enjoying him, enjoying his blessing. Many of us, we're just still too busy to listen, to pay attention, to acknowledge what he's done. Ask yourself, Are you in love with God? Or do you just have some sort of relationship? You're good friends. You're glad for what He's done for you. But you couldn't really characterize it as being in love with God. There's every reason for us to do so. 
because he has given us everything we need. He has fully equipped us to be the people that he's called us to be. The question is, are we going to respond? And I pray that you might experience a brand new love. Take these with you. Practice them as we move into this week that is to come. And the week that wraps up. And the week beyond that. So that we might not find ourselves in a new place. Experiencing his equipping in a new way. All that we need. Now for some of you. It may very well be whether you're listening in person. Whether you're listening online that some of this just doesn't ring completely true and possible for you because you really never established that relationship with God in the first place. And so all these promises that are given to people who belong to Christ aren't yours, but they can be. They can be just by acknowledging and asking God to transform you and move in your heart. You can do that through prayer. Would you all bow your heads with me, please? And, and I'll just lead you in a prayer that can take you there. You might pray something like this if this is your desire. Dear God, thank you for the way that you desire to equip me so fully with all that is needed to experience the greatest blessing of all because it's the blessing that has its source in you, in your divine nature, in your righteousness, in your glory, in your goodness. Lord, I desire that for myself. So I come to confess my sin, to ask you to take it out of the way through that which you've equipped me with in the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross to deal with my sin. I ask you for forgiveness. And today I put my hope and my trust in you. It's that simple, friend. And if that's what the desire of your heart is, it's signed, sealed, and delivered. It's taken care of. And if you're listening in person before you go, write on your Connect card that you made a decision for Christ today. And we'll be able to pray with you and for you and assist you. If you're listening online, then through that online connection card, you can do the very same thing or email or call me. I would love to talk to you about how to move forward. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your presence here, your presence with us. And I just pray that you would move in us more and more so that we would not continue to just propagate the sort of spiritual experience we've had that we know that has not been everything that it should be, but that we might turn a page today and that we might live in the fullness of all that you have provided. Help us to fall more in love with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.